And let's just remember what we've been saying about the catechism. Uh, you can find it again in your hymnal. If you look in your hymnal, page 865, I think we said last week it was. Um, if not, you might... Hmm? Or 67. So once you get there, you're close enough, you should be able to spot it. So remember the key thing about a confession or a catechism it's not scripture. It's nowhere close to being scripture. We wouldn't claim that. There are some um, church bodies that do claim uh, a level of authority for their uh, secondary documents that are on par with scripture, but we don't believe that to be the case at all. So the confessions and the catechisms serve a wonderful purpose. They summarize the scripture for us. That's their real strength. They summarize it for you. They give you uh, a, a place that you can turn to to quickly get a handle on those key things that we believe Scripture to teach. Notice key things. It does not contain everything that Scripture possibly can contain because then it would be Scripture itself. So it simply is a summary. And the shorter catechism was written for children and is meant to uh, give us a question-answer format that makes it easy to catechize, that is to teach our children on the basics of the faith. And we're going to be using that to help us understand. So last week we launched into the catechism itself. We had talked a little bit about its background, its origins in the 1640s and so on, and how it's the most widely adopted catechism in the world now. And we looked at question number one. And anybody remember what that question is? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. There we go, absolutely. And what we said about question one, and this is not just by way of review, it sets us up here for question number two. What we said about question number one is that it just isn't like a first question in terms of, well, we've got to get to this first and move on. It really is foundational. It lays out not just the structure of the entire catechism, as we're going to see from there, but it's a foundational question in that it begins to set up a worldview for how we live. And what we had said last week was it answers the question, why do we exist? Why are we here? We live then. Our very purpose is to bring glory to the name of God. We said that we don't actually make him glorious it's a recognition of his glory. It's living in a way that highlights him as the center of our lives. And we pointed out last week also that everyone ultimately will glorify God. We looked at Romans chapter 9, for example, where it talks about those whom God created for grace, for receiving mercy, i.e. his children. Uh, we glorify him because he has saved us, and so we see his compassion and his mercy and so on. And those whom he has created to display his justice and his holiness in those who do not accept Christ. And both will end up glorifying God. The question is whether you do it willingly or unwillingly, but we will end up doing that. And, of course, then we talked about that chief end doesn't mean, and this was very important that we looked at last week, doesn't mean that you say, well, it's my first purpose, and then I can have other purposes and so on, and those are divorced from that primary purpose. We said it's more like a ring in which all of the strands of our life pass through that ring. Everything is informed by the fact that we live to glorify God. And we ended, and this was uh, this is a very important part that gets often ignored, 
It's not just to glorify God, but it's to enjoy Him forever. We were created for Him. Our true joy and our true satisfaction and true contentment can only be found when we've centered our life on God. And when you, when you look at, uh, I think I mentioned this last week, but C.S. Lewis makes it uh, so clear when he talks about every joy in life is really just uh, uh, pointing to the joy the ultimate joy. And we talked about this whole concept of sensukt. Remember that? The idea of nostalgia, of a longing that we all have. And we've had ever since the fall for that perfect relationship with Christ, perfect relationship with God, which now happens through Christ, and so on. And we have that longing, and that longing cannot be filled or fulfilled by anything else. Interestingly, can I, I'm just going to do, I didn't say this last week, and this is not exactly 100% necessary for what we're going to do today, but I should have said it last week. And it's just a little aside. As I'm getting older, and it's happening, you can see the white is now almost completely taken over the, the rest of my black hair. So as we get older, and I've watched other folks get older, you watch people and they either become much more, they, they become very bitter as they get old, or they become much more, you know, suave and just, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, able to handle things and so on. And, <laughs> that remains to be seen. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, my brother. <laughs> yes. yes. He'll be here all evening. No. Um, so, anyway, but... There we go. But as we, but as we get older, you see people who life doesn't become everything they want and they become bitter and they become sometimes mean-spirited and so on and what have you. Um, and, and it's driven because of the fact that they have searched for their answers, their contentment, their satisfaction, and so many things and doesn't, they're not finding it. And so they become cynical or bitter and so on. Whereas when we turn to Christ and we find what we need in Christ, then even the, the hard things that happen in life uh, don't turn us cynical or anything. It just makes us long more for when Christ will return and make all things new. Anyway, just a little aside that we could have riffed off. But let's go ahead and jump into question two today because the very next question is going to begin to lay out for us. Well, why don't I read it? And then you can see what it lays out for us. So will somebody read question number two? And again, for those folks who are just arriving, um, Shorter Catechism, you can find that in the uh, back of your hymnal if you don't have it already somewhere else. Uh, back of your hymnal, what page? It is, is it 65, 68, 70? 69. 869. So, will somebody read question number two? What rules have God given to direct us and how we may glorify and All right, so we've, been, we've said that our chief purpose is to glorify and enjoy God. Well, well, how do I do that? That's a perfectly good question to ask. First one tells you what you're to do, and the second one's now going to answer how to do that. And the answer is, will somebody read? Not all at once. Aha. All right. So immediately, here in question number two, the catechism turns to talking about the centrality and the place of Scripture. That it is the Bible, it is the Word of God, which is given to us as one of the rules. Only rule. It's the only rule that can lay out for us 
how we are to, in fact, glorify God and to enjoy Him. So let's go ahead and unpack that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you guys, just for the sake of time, to look up a bunch of passages, and I'm not going to be looking at them all at once immediately. We're going to um, um, just use them throughout the class. So let me ask if, if I can get volunteers, um, and if you don't volunteer, I'll just pick you. But hold on to your particular scripture reading until we need it, and I'll just call out for it. But will somebody look up 2 Timothy 3.16? Can I get a volunteer for that? Got one, okay. How about <clears throat> Revelation 22:18 through 19? Russ, you got that? Great. Can I get somebody who might do, um, you know what, I'll keep that one myself. How about Psalm 19.1? We used that last week, but we're going to use it again this week. Psalm 19.1, got one over there, thank you. Then, can we do Romans 1.20? I got a Romans 1.20, thank you. Anne's got that. And let's see, we're going to probably need... We might be getting near the end. Okay, I think that should be it. For fun, maybe just for fun, if we have time, somebody can find Psalm 53.1. Psalm 53.1. That one's just for fun. We may not get to it. But let's go ahead and jump in then. Uh, and whoever I asked to do 2 Timothy 3.16, was that you, Brandon? Let's go ahead and listen to this. Most of you probably know this passage and may, may even have memorized it. If you'll read that one nice and loud. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All right. Actually, you know what? Read the next verse. All right, so there we are. It's the scripture that enables us and equips us to live a life uh, that is pleasing to God, that glorifies Him. And let's see if we can jump into that. When we look at the scriptures, if it were so simple, right, wouldn't everybody just read it and <gasps> everything makes sense? But it doesn't quite work that way. If we look at Luke ten twenty one, it's the passage where Jesus is saying that the Father has hid or hidden certain things from the wise and the prudent, but instead he's revealed them to infants, revealed them to babes. And of course, if I sit there and say, well, is he literally saying that older and wise people can't see things and little babies can? And he's, of course, talking in spiritual terms. Those whom the world considers to be wise, those experts, you see them all the time. They're on CNN, they're on Fox News, they're in the United Nations, right? They're the people that we turn to that supposedly have all the answers, they're going to the same people that we've been turning to for decade after decade to fix all our problems and they just keep asking for more of our money because their fixes don't work. But these are the experts. Who are the babes? And some of you have heard me say this in certain settings, other Sunday school classes, that you can very often grab, you know, that little old lady from the backwoods of West Virginia and it's not to knock little old ladies. I have a mom who's a little old lady nothing against little old ladies, but little old ladies in order to knock West Virginia or anything like that. But you can grab one of these ladies and you can put her, and, and, and she's a believer and has been a believer all her life and has been looking at the scripture. She'll know it better than a PhD at Union Theological Seminary in, in, in uh, Manhattan, New York. Uh, 
there's something that we have to be able to understand before we can grasp why don't we just hand the Bible to everybody and everything makes sense. And why is the Bible then that only rule? So what we begin to see is that there is this true wisdom, this true guidance that's there, but it's not accessible uh, to everyone. And that's something that um, really begins to revolutionize the way we look at things. Uh, most of you have heard of the James Webb Telescope that's out there right now, and you know it's replaced the Hubble Telescope in terms of, I mean, the Hubble's still working, but replaced it in terms of being the latest and greatest thing, and it really is an amazing piece of technology able to image uh, you know, things that are really, really far away. But invariably, what always happens, and you guys know I was trained as, as a physicist, um, and it's always the same sort of thing. As soon as they start making certain discoveries, it raises more questions. So the, you know, one of the rovers on Mars has looked and seen this or that and analyzed this or the other, and it raises more questions. And so it continues on and on and on. No matter how much more we manage to, to find or to discover, assuming we even get it right, it always raises more questions. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what it has done is in our uh, world system, it, it really has made people stop and think. You see, right now, you've heard the terms modernism, you've heard the terms postmodernism. Perhaps you're not 100% familiar with how those terms are being used. Uh, they refer to the ways that you look at the world uh, and, and how you interpret the world. And modernism, which is quickly dying, but it's still very much here. Uh, if you were born before 1970, you were um, uh, raised in a more modern mindset. Not completely, but raised in a more modern mindset. Postmodernism starts coming in uh, effectively in the culture uh, post-World War II, but it's actually been around uh, since the 1880s. Uh, that's a story for another day. But what modernism contended was that there is real truth, absolute truth that can be discovered. So you can go out there and you can measure and you can do this and you can do that and you can come to a real conclusion. That's not the only thing that modernism taught, but it was one of the, 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 the societal or cultural values of modernism was that there was real truth that could be discoverable. In the 19th century, the 1800s, there was actually belief amongst many that progress, progress will eventually get us to the point where we figured it all out, literally. And you look at the writings, look at that, you know, just pick a decade, like look around the 1870s or the 1880s, and they really had an expectation that they could figure everything out, that the only problem was that we had not just gotten enough bits of data. But sooner or later, once you get all the bits of data, you've got it. You can figure it all out. It's a huge amount of hubris, no doubt about it. But that was the, the, uh, the spirit of the age at the end of the 19th century amongst scientists and even and that of course always works its way down to the public and so on. One of the things, and this wasn't just in science, this was in all the fields including social issues. So when World War I came, the Great War as it was known then, it was a real kick in the pants because they had believed that they had worked themselves up to a point where everything could be solved by just dialogue and all these, you know, liberal, and by liberal, I don't mean liberal and conservative as seen today, but in the classic term, uh, classic usage of the word liberal. But, you know, through these liberal values, we, we wouldn't have war. We could do away with war. And if you look at the writings of that time period, it was believed 
that the Great War was like the last gasp. Okay, man just had to get this last bit of animal rage out of himself and so on. And then we're going to have the League of Nations and everybody's going to just, you know, be at peace. And there was true belief in that. If you look what's paralleling at the same time in the church, the modernist movement was rising up and it was all uh, of a piece. When World War II comes, it's completely devastating to the intellectual elite because the horrors of World War II and everything that came out of it, you begin to realize man is not going to recover from this. And postmodernism begins to take hold, which is a thinking that basically says, we're not going to figure it all out. In fact, we cannot figure it all out. And when we begin to put that with the pieces of we keep making discoveries and we keep realizing no, there's more questions and more questions, whereas modernism thought we could figure it all out, postmodernism is saying, why even bother? You can't figure out anything. And it's moved into this whole idea. You hear people talking about it now. It's a new term. I still remember when it, was, when it came in. People talk about the narrative. What is the narrative? Everything is now. There's no real truth. It's just how you weave the story, and it's your truth or your narrative. And so people talk about that narrative all the time. What's behind that is that there is no actual truth. It's just how you want to frame whatever is happening. Both of those are wrong. The, view, the, the thing with all these different views, whether it be uh, the medieval mindset, the enlightenment mindset, the modern mindset, the postmodern mindset, and whatever will follow postmodernism, each one of them brings something good. Modernism believed that there actually is real truth, and there is. Postmodernism corrected that to the point of saying, yeah, but you can't know everything. It went too far, and that's the problem. Each one of them always, because they're not biblically grounded, always has a fatal flaw. Even when postmodernism rightly tells modernism, hey, you can't know everything because you're not God. They didn't say that part, but that's the reason you can't know everything because they didn't have a biblical mindset. They end up, their answer swings the pendulum way too much the other way and so on. So see, the scripture, again, the reason I'm taking this long discourse to get here is to show that, to show that this really ties into question one, Understanding question two, again, is a worldview issue. It's a way of shaping your entire life, how you view everything, when you say that the Scripture ultimately is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God forever. It's a worldview thing because you begin to realize that there is nowhere else that you can turn to get the information that you need. So let's take a look at a few things. How does God communicate His information to us. Well, we tend to talk about two different types of revelation, right? When revelation is God revealing truth to us. Anybody know what those two types are? You can just shout it out if anybody wants to throw one or two out. I'm sorry, well, I heard general and special. I heard creation. Yeah, general, sometimes called natural. And this comes through the creation. So general revelation and special revelation. What's special revelation, Marla, since you were calling that out? The Word of God. Okay. So this is creation. Probably need another color pen up here, but I'll go with what I got. So creation. And this is the Word. And what's interesting is we begin to realize that God is speaking through both of those. And he speaks, well, you tell me, is he, um, let's, let's start with general revelation. 
So, does somebody have uh, Psalm 19.1? If you'll read that, please. All right, thank you so much. We looked at that last week when we talked about what does it mean to glorify God, and the heavens declare the very glory of God. So, the creation, the creation is showing something about who God is. It speaks in that regard. So the, the creation does that, and it, it, it puts out real information about this world in which we live and the God who created this world. The problem, however, is what? Anybody know what the problem with, I shouldn't say the problem, but the limitation is with general creation? We don't see clearly. Oh, so, you know, Phil just jumped three levels ahead because he's Phil. <laughs> Phil's been raised in this stuff, you guys know. So that's exactly right. There's nothing wrong with general creation. General creation speaks as clearly as the Word of God does, as the Bible does. The problem is, and we're going to find the same problem with the Bible, is that we're broken. Think of it as like a, um, a receiver and a radio, right? So you've got your, your radio tower, right? And it's emitting, right? There's a signal going everywhere. And over here, you have your receiver, right? You've got your radio, little antenna. And because of sin, that receiver has been damaged. That receiver has been broken. It receives something of the signal, but it doesn't receive it 100% clearly. And that impacts our ability to be able to understand, and yet there's enough there. Did I ask somebody to look up um, in Romans, let's see, why did I lose my spot? Romans 120. Did I have somebody do that? Yes. Yeah, indeed. So thank you. There is enough in creation to reveal the power of God and his attributes. That's all visible in creation. The problem is we don't see it because of that broken receiver, because of sin. In fact, that passage goes on to say that we purposefully, anybody know what it says? subdue, suppress the truth. It's not that we sit there and, you know, because you always hear the question, what about that poor innocent pygmy who's in the middle of Africa who, or wherever, you know, you pick a spot, who's never heard the gospel. God really wouldn't condemn him to hell, would he? Yes, because he's not innocent. He's a sinner like everyone else, and a sinful person like you and like me deserve condemnation and deserve hell. It is by grace that we've heard the message of Scripture, the gospel, and been able to respond. But that person is still guilty, whether they've heard the gospel or not. God does not owe them a chance to be saved, right? So uh, the point is that there is enough there. We actively see the goodness of God. We actively see all the things. And, and of course, we'll get into this more as we go into the catechism. It actually addresses these issues directly. But we, we know who God is, we know that he is who he claims to be, and we suppress it. And we suppress it, why? Because what do we want to be? 
We want to be God. We want to be in charge. I mean, we might sit there and say, oh, I want to be the center of the universe. But in, in essence, we say, you know what, God? I, I, I can even acknowledge that you exist and that you are God, but I want to do things my way. So for whatever reason, we ultimately suppress that truth. But the point is, general creation, general revelation, I say, is just as trustworthy and just as true as special revelation, which is what we find in the Word of God. Um, we are called as scientists to exegete, to interpret general revelation, just like theologians are called to exegete, to interpret the Word of God, and the material is trustworthy. The problem is our conclusions. <laughs> That's the issue. You know? So we just got to understand that there's, there's two different kinds of, of revelation. Uh, but once we get that, now we can begin to understand how all this works. So the problem is the receiver, it's not us. Uh, I mean, it is us. The problem is not the revelation itself. God is speaking. And where I want to go with that now is just to focus on the Word as that particular means that shows us how to, how to glorify God. The Scripture, though it reveals who God is, has nothing salvific. I'm sorry, the Scripture. The general revelation, though it reveals who God is, has nothing salvific about it. So you cannot, from just looking at creation, figure out how to overcome your sin problem, how to overcome the debt that we owe God because of our rebellion. So that's why you need to have uh, that special revelation given in the Word. Now, let me go back a step, too, and say that this idea of Word revelation is not necessarily always salvific, okay? Uh, not everything that God says is redemptive because he was speaking before the fall, not just after the fall, but before the fall he spoke. And there were certain things and limitations to general revelation even then. When he placed Adam in the garden, what did he tell him? Hmm? Go forth and multiply. So he tells him what to do because, believe it or not, he wouldn't have known. What else does he tell them? Go do that, but also don't don't listen to the women. <laughs> that comes later. No, um, don't eat. Yes, of this one, the eating the fruit of this one tree, and, and you know, just stay away from it. Adam was incapable. Here's Adam, sinless, perfect in his knowledge, righteousness, and holiness still incapable of knowing how to glorify God unless God speaks. So we begin to see the centrality of the spoken word. As much as the general word, creation, even to a sinless creature like Adam, it still was not enough. The sinless creature still needed to have the spoken word in order to know how to glorify God. Does that make sense? So once we grasp that, we can begin to see again how central the Word is, how it shapes our entire worldview, our whole approach to life, and where this question is coming from. Now, given our time, there is, uh, I'm just going to do a little detour here, but we'll use that detour to lead into something. Uh, the way the question is framed, or rather the answer is framed, has been uh, abused a little bit by certain people. The answer says the Word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. That little clause in the middle, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is meant to convey in shorthand, 
what the breadth of Scripture is. In other words, when we sit there and say, well, what is this special revelation? Oh, it's the Old and New Testaments, right? That's so that we're not thinking it's the Apocrypha or whatever the Pope says or the Book of Mormon or anything else. It's just a quick question or a quick phrase, I should say, clause that's meant to convey to us what the Scripture uh, is defined as, the Old and the New Testaments. When we go to the Confession of Faith, the Confession of Faith is much more explicit as it usually is because this is meant to be just a quick question that your kids can learn. The problem has come, and I'm going to erase all this if that's okay with you guys because we all, we've mastered that now. The problem is that certain people have twisted the word contained. And I want to be sure, just in case you may have heard one of these um, twisted definitions or so on, I want to correct that and make sure that we understand exactly what is being said here. The attempt in the catechism question, which they never could have in 1648, have figured that somebody was going to try to twist in this way, was just simply to give us the, the, the boundaries. Where is that word contained? Well, you get your Bible, it's the Old Testament, it's the New Testament, and so on. There are some folks that basically are saying, well, by contained, it means that the Word of God is kind of in the Bible, but is not the Bible. Does that make sense? What they're arguing is that the, that the Word of God, the Bible is like a container. I was going to draw a box, but for sake of time. That it's a container. That the Scripture is just a container, but the Word of God is contained inside that container. Why would they come up with that view? Well, let's do a little bit of history. I said that um, postmodernism actually starts in the 1880s, um, actually the 1820s. Anybody know what happened in the 1820s, world movement? It's the start of the Romantic era, Romanticism. Now, you might think, Romanticism, you know, uh, uh, Emerson and, you know, all those guys who sat around Walden Pond and, and did all that. Romanticism, and by the way, all this ties in, all the different things. You can look at your politics, Andrew Jackson. All this is all tied of a piece. Individualism rises with Romanticism and so on. It's the first step away from enlightenment, the enlightenment age, where, again, you know, the mind was primary, and romanticism starts saying that what's primary? Not the mind, but it's what dominates today. Feelings, feelings. You, you know, you, can, you watch it on the, you can, you can uh, uh, have you ever tried to talk to anybody on the internet about any, trying to, I hope you don't, because it never works. Or now you can watch any cable TV show. What's the first thing you do? There's no facts. You just, it's feelings. It's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be louder, and when I'm losing the argument, I'm going to yell. One, one word or the other, they're racist, Nazi, and we're done. See, because my feelings got hurt. My feelings, you know, so starts in the 1820s, believe it or not. By the 1880s, it's now in the academy, that is to say in the academic circles. It is in the schools, it is in the PhD program, which there were no PhDs prior to the 1870s and 1880s. That in, you had doctors, you had people who were considered, you know, like Calvin was a doctor of the church, right, teachers. But the, the classic PhD program of today, which has caused untold harm in, in uh, Western civilization, it really has, also done a lot of good, it's caused people to study things, but the very structure of it as uh, because, you know, every Ph.D. has to contribute something new. What's the problem when contributing something new to Scripture? You're a theologian. Ah, right? 
can't change scripture. Anyway, you can always discover certain things that were there, but after a while, okay, well, that's a story for another day. But um, by the 1880s, you're at the point now where the scripture begins to be looked at as a human document. And so you get what now we would call classic liberalism, uh, uh, the old version of liberalism, which basically said you've got the Bible and certain parts of it are true and it's actually what God conveyed and then there are certain parts of it that are not true, that there's human error in the Bible. So anybody can look at the scripture you know, in the 1880s and you can see there's mention of the Hittites and there's no such thing as the Hittites. Now, the Hittites have long since been found, but for 100 years from the 1880s on, there's no Hittites, there's no archaeological evidence. That was just made up until we found the archaeological evidence. But for believers, we didn't care whether we had found it or not because we already knew God had spoken and it was true. But that, setting that aside, there was this idea, oh, you know, there's contradictions. This doesn't seem to make sense. Those are human errors that are in the Scripture, but the other things are the Word of God. So if you were uh, a liberal or if you were in the church listening about 1900, that's what you would have heard. We call that classic classic liberalism. Then around the 1920s, it branches. And there's two types of liberalism that are now exist. You know, I, you know, I was in many, uh, or many years in PCUSA settings, uh, mainline church settings. If you've been in those, you've heard one or the other of these two. So one of those is we just gave up on saying certain parts are inspired and certain parts are, are error. These are word of God. These are just strictly human. That's what a classic liberal would have said. And, and by the way, these views continued on many years beyond the 1880s or 1920s, just like modernism still, it's, the effects are felt. But this new way of liberalism just basically said, why even say some parts are the word of God and some parts are an error? The whole thing is just a human document. And you'll find that in many, many mainline churches today. The other view, some of you may have heard of this view, is called neo-orthodoxy and it attempted to save the scripture neo just means new so this is the new orthodoxy this was uh, put forward by a guy called Karl Barth a Swiss not Swedish, Swiss theologian and Karl Barth wanted to save the scripture from where it was headed, which was now saying that just the whole thing is just a human document and can't be trusted. And so he developed this idea that what it is is, of course, it's just a human document. We'll grant that to the scholars, to the PhDs and all that. It's a human document. But what happens is that when you read it, the Holy Spirit works, even though it has errors and all that other stuff, the Holy Spirit works through the scripture and then it becomes the word of God. And he hid behind, because he came out from a Swiss Reformed background, so he hid behind the words which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to say, ah, see, the word of God is, is, is just there, like this, this, this subtext that has to, be, has to kind of bounce out. But the actual words themselves are not inspired or anything special. And that view uh, is actually very prevalent in PCUSA, mainline Presbyterian churches, and a number of other churches. So you may have heard of it, and that's why I wanted to address it. But that is not at all, of course, what the framers of the catechism meant. They simply meant to delineate the bounds of Scripture, Old and New Testament, not the Book of Mormon, and not the Apocrypha, and all that other stuff. And what is the Reform view? Well, the Reform view is very, very simple. I'm going to end 
with that. And I think um, I know I gave you guys things to look up, but we may not get to all of them. So let's just look at some of the, the characteristics of Scripture, and that's where I want to end today. We're going to look at what is the, our view of the Scripture and why is it so, uh, why, it, why is it the only rule? And there is um, a, a couple of ways we can lay this out. I'm going to choose this one. Um, I, I don't particularly like the order, but it kind of works. Cans. Clear. Authoritative. Necessary. And sufficient. I actually like to do clear at the end. I'd rather do it down here, but then you get ANSC, ANSC. Doesn't really work, but yeah, some people do it this way. Necessary, authoritative, I don't know why. Sufficient, and then P, perspicacious. Perspicacious is just the PhD level word for clear. <laughs> so let's just use the word that makes more sense. So let's actually, I'm going to start with something number right here in the middle. We affirm that the scripture is authoritative that it actually has the authority of the Word of God. And it does so because it is inerrant and infallible, two words that you hear used a lot. So let's throw those two words out there and work with what they mean. Uh, the word infallible, well, the word inerrant just simply means without error. error. That's right. So there's no mistake. So remember, the liberals were saying that there's human error in there. And... Um, and, and, and the Word of God can still pop out, or there's parts that really are the Word of God, and there's are parts that are man-made, or however they wanted to, you know, which version of liberalism they had. But we're claiming all throughout the Scripture there's no error. Some people may say, but wait a minute, it's clear that, you know, they, they, they say a certain number, and it actually turns out to be another number. Well, very often, Scripture speaks the way you and I speak, right? And so, if somebody asks me, how long have I been here as pastor of this church? I tend to say 17 years. If I really want to get down to it, then I say 17 years, and it's since, been since July. So 17 years and two months. But I, of course, I started July 1st, so it's 17 years and two months and 24 days. I mean, you get the idea? We don't speak that way. Scripture doesn't always either. Many of the things that, and this is not a whole defense of Scripture class, but it would be easy enough to show that there are times when Scripture simply rounds numbers or, you know, that kind of thing, and, you know, and says it's going to be 70 years. <gasps> it was 71. Oh, run away. Head for the hills. And there's also all sorts of things that have to do with um, uh, different um, 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 ways that you date things. The kings sometimes is the king, you know, Okay, you guys may know this. In Hispanic culture, the first time I heard it, it shocked me. I mean, I grew up in a Hispanic home. But I was with, um, uh, we were starting a small church, starting a church. It was still kind of small. And this, this guy, Spanish speaker, says, okay, I'll see you guys in eight days. I'm like, in eight days? We're meeting next week exactly the same time. Not eight days. Because what he's doing, he's counting today and then eight days. Just like when we say Jesus rose from the, uh, the grave on the third day. <gasps> But it's only two days. Scripture is wrong. No, that's the way the Jews counted it. The very, you count with the day one is the very day. But we tend to count the next day, right? We go, rah, rah, right? So little things like that begin to explain things. 
we're then claiming then the scripture is inerrant. It is without error, but you have to read the genre, you have to read the intent of the author and so on, and it all falls into place. It's not meant to be a scientific textbook sitting in some federal repository where everything is, you know. It's all true, it's without error. It's also infallible. Anybody know what infallible might mean? Does not fail, does not fall down. In other words, because it is inerrant, because it is authoritative and so on, it's never going to let you down. Everything that it says is not only true, but is right. And there's a difference between that. Because I can say a whole bunch of stuff that's true and doesn't come together, right? I could say something like, the sky is blue, your name is David, Therefore, you must love your wife. What? All those were true statements, but one thing doesn't... I just made that up, as you could tell. But, I mean, I didn't make up the fact that the sky is blue, although we can get into whether it's really blue and what makes it blue. But, you know, I can make that statement. I can make that statement about David's name. But one thing doesn't follow from the other. Infallible means that everything comes together, and what it tells you is will not fall down, will not fail. Because the scripture is authoritative. And ultimately it's authoritative because of what Brandon was reading. It is breathed out. The word inspired actually should be expired. It means it's from the, the, the Latin word, uh, actually the Greek word, spiros, for breath. And inspired means you breathe in. But actually the, in the original language it's God breathes out the word. So it's actually God's spoken word to us. Inerrant, infallible, and therefore authoritative. Phil? Uh, apply what? I'm sorry. Very good question. So uh, if you couldn't hear what Phil is asking, he's saying, how does this apply to translations? And translations are just that. They are translations of the original. So, you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, portion, a few portions in Aramaic, primarily Hebrew and Aramaic the New Testament written in Greek, and if I can grab what the Apostle John actually wrote, if I actually had that, I would say this is the author, authoritative, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The minute I translate that into English, there may be mistakes that creep into the translations. Um, so, no, we would never claim that the translation itself is inerrant and infallible, but the original manuscripts, what God actually said, is now, does, am I saying that to remove confidence from your Bibles? No, that's why you have a whole lot of smart people looking at them and writing and translating in a way that minimizes those mistakes. You've got people checking each other. But it's also why we make corrections. The ESV, which I think is the best overall, all-around translation, there's weaknesses in it, but overall, has already gone through how many revisions? It came out in 2001, was revised in 2007, updated in 2011, and they claim a final revision in 2016. We'll see if it's final. Why? Because you look and say, oh, there's a certain and better way I could say that. Or, you know, that kind of thing. Marla? Isn't the original Autographer, sometimes. Yeah, it's just, the, again, a scholarly term to basically mean the originals. Yeah, that's all it means. Yeah. When you talk about your autograph, it's your original signature, right? Graph is just writing in Greek. Graphe just means writing. So uh, the graphe are the writings, the scriptures, which is actually what the word scripture comes from. So that's it for authoritative. And 
we're almost out of time, so let me just jump through these others. Scripture is also perspicacious or clear. And what it basically means is that there are parts of Scripture that are a little more difficult to grab a hold of, but the general message of Scripture of who God is, what He is doing to save us from our sin, and what is required of us as a response, that you can pick up. And that's why the little old lady from West Virginia can know more than the theologian who's a liberal scholar whose eyes have not been opened through the enabling of the Holy Spirit to be able to see and to be able to understand. It is clear there are some parts that are not as clear, and the clearer parts help to illumine those. So we clearly believe, clearly believe, we definitely believe that it is clear. And the reason that matters is, again, it speaks to the fact that the Bible is not meant for, the, for, the, uh, for esoteric um, purposes. It's not meant for the masters. Ephesians 4 says that one of the gifts that God gives to the church is the pastor slash teacher. God gives us as a gift to the church to help you better understand. But it is not in the province of the pastors alone, the theologians alone, the cardinals and the bishops and so on. And then we just speak and tell you, you have to do X, Y, and Z. You can go to the scripture and you can read. In fact, you must. And you check what is being said. You can go to somebody who's perhaps had a little more study and so on, ask them for their help and so on. We provide that in Sunday school and so many other ways. But because the scripture is clear, it is not the the possession of the clergy or the elite. It's not esoteric. Uh, Also, whenever you find, you know, uh, thankfully you always find them in the, hopefully, in the bargain bargain bin book section, you know, at Barnes & Noble or on the little $1.99 Kindle version, you know, the, the secret to the Bible, and there's always something like some numerology thing that nobody could see. No, no, no. You can see it. That's clear. Okay? So I'm going to leave it at that. And the last two, necessary and sufficient, really kind of work together. So necessary simply means, again, you need the Bible. The g- general revelation is not enough. You need to have God speak. By the way, I'll say this. The Scripture does not contain everything that God has ever said. There are things that are mentioned in Scripture that refer to something that God said that never got recorded. Does that make them less God's Word? No. Everything that God spoke is His perfect revelation. But not everything was necessary for all ages for whatever purposes God intended, so they weren't uh, necessarily recorded. Some may have been recorded for a short time but didn't make it into the Scripture. God has only recorded in the Scripture what He deems all of humanity needs to know uh, long term. But there may very well have been things that God spoke. Um, not very well. There are things that God has spoken that are not recorded, but they're all still authoritative. By the way, that's a little sideline to get into some other time about charismatics. Uh, many who believe that what they speak today, prophecy and so on, is um, equally Uh, authoritative like Old Testament prophets and so on. And then some who have properly said, you know, that's not going to work. There's many reasons why we can't claim that anymore. So now they say that New Testament prophecy is different, that we speak non-authoritatively. Well, then it's not the Word of God. Then then we have a word for it. It's called your opinion. And so, no, no, really. So when you come and say, I have a word of knowledge, quit your job and move from this place to that place and do, you know, all that. It's like, okay, whatever. All right, but let's move on. Necessary. The scripture is necessary because you cannot understand, not just salvifically, 
looking at the general revelation, but even as we saw with Adam, you need God to speak, even in a sinless state. So it's absolutely necessary. We cannot do without it. Um, of course, we already know now that veil has to be removed when the Holy Spirit makes us a new creation. These are all things that we'll study. We'll go into the catechism, regeneration, and so on. Then we're able to see what others aren't able to see. But it's necessary. You're not going to be able to figure it out on your own. Again, this is big worldview stuff. It means there are out there, there's tons of solutions out there. Everybody is coming up with all sorts of solutions to everything. And if Scripture is not at the center of it, guess what they're going to be every single time? Wrong. Every single time. Wrong. Last one. Sufficient. Oh, this is a big one. And we're wrestling with this right now in the church worldwide. Across the church universal. Not only do you need Scripture, but it's sufficient. It's all you need. What? All you need? What? We shouldn't learn anything else? No, I'm not saying that. I'm talking about for its purposes... It's all you need. You do not need the Book of Mormon. You do not need uh, extra revelation coming, you know, to as our Muslim neighbors claim. None of those things is necessary. In fact, they're going to be wrong because of that. But you need it, and it's all you need. It is sufficient. And anybody who studied logic, you know, that those are two conditions that are often used in logic. Is this condition necessary? Is it sufficient? Or, you know, does it need something else? It's like baking a cake right? Uh, probably should pick a better example for a guy who doesn't cook. But uh, I was going to say flour is necessary, but I think I've heard of flourless cakes, right? So tell me something quickly, because we have little... What, what, must, what must we have? Oxygen for fire. Okay, so there we go. We have to... Fire is impossible without oxygen, so oxygen is necessary. But is it sufficient? No, because if that's all you needed for fire, we'd all be burning up right now, Right? <laughs> So, thank you. You bailed me out of that one. So, the scripture is sufficient in and of itself, and that completely changes how we look at things. Who's got the Revelation passage? Can you read that? Somebody have Revelation 22, 18 through 20? Nope. Did we not have anybody take that? Well, that, that means that, that that's a deficiency with them, not with the Scripture. The Scripture is sufficient. It's all they need. That they don't get it is something else. But when I come in as a teacher, I'm not giving you something else other than the Scripture. If I come and tell you, well, that's nice that you read that in the Bible, but now let me tell you what, you know, I as the authoritative magisterium of the church says or anything else, then that's a problem. You're right. There are some people uh, who struggle. In fact, I think we can put every single one of us does not know everything we need to know about Scripture. Yeah, well, all of us, and myself and everybody else included, none of us has a perfect and complete understanding of Revelation. So we all fall into that category, uh, which is to simply say that we are def deficient in our understanding. But the Scripture itself is sufficient. It's all we need to understand. We don't need to go beyond that. Does somebody manage to find... It was 22, 18 through 20.
right, thank you so much. So that's the ending of the book of Revelation. Some people argue well, that's only referring to the book of Revelation, but I think it's properly placed where it is. Uh, theologians have long recognized over the centuries that it's really speaking ultimately to the whole of the scriptures. It's, it's sufficient. It doesn't need anything more. It doesn't have, should not have anything subtracted from it. So, okay, I'm going to just stop there. We can go on and on and on. But these are the four things that we can say are attributes of Scripture. It's clear, it's authoritative, it's necessary, it's sufficient. Under authoritative, we put those two uh, attributes or characteristics of infallible and inerrant, um, so just by way of review. So that gives you kind of an idea then. This is our view of Scripture. It is what we need. It's the only way that we can answer, um, the only way we can accomplish what question one calls us to do. All right, let me just stop there. Obviously, we can go on and on and on, but are there any questions or... Uh, just comments that we want to go off of. Who was saying that? The atheist? Was the atheist saying that that was the... Yeah. Yeah, what Marla is getting at is, um, you know, this atheist in a, in a theologian, athea, uh, in a Christian versus atheist debate claimed that the best evidence for God was the fine-tuning of the universe. And what that reference is, is when we look at the universe, and we don't have time to get into this, but it, it's very clear that it is uh, perfectly suited for human life. In, and it's not just Earth. At first, they were just saying it's just the Earth, you know, that has water and has just the right composition of this and that, so that everything can happen, et cetera, et cetera. But you actually look at even the whole of the universe, the expansion rate of the universe, all that seems to work in a way to create life. So, uh, is that clear evidence of a designer? I wouldn't say that it's the strongest <coughs> argument for, and the reason I would say that is because this man is saying that because he's already set aside because of his sin and his inability to see it, he's already set aside scripture. Uh, the problem is with all, di- they're called um, uh, different arguments for the existence of God, they're all, you know, these designer arguments are all fairly new. Uh, they, made, they made prime time starting in the 80s. Uh, they were already around a little bit before that. Uh, but there's other things, the cosmological arm- argument, the teleological argument, all these others that are, you know, you can find William Paley in the 1700s writing about. We don't have time to look into those. But these design ones uh, have been around now for about 40 years. The problem is in the end, you can just dismiss them just as well as everything else. In the end, it's very clear. God has spoken, and we either choose to listen or to not listen. And there's nothing clearer than his action. Because you hear people sitting there saying, if only God would speak to me, if only he would show himself. He has. He's come down. He's walked amongst us, right? How does First John open? That which we have seen, which we have touched, which, you know, we experienced ourselves. He, he's walked in our midst. So, no, I would disagree. Um, he already shows his bias just by claiming that's the strongest argument, which he would probably be able to counter, which Stephen Hawking tried to spend his whole life trying to counter. So, in the end, any one of those arguments, they're helpful but they're not arguments for, they're evidence of. And that's a complete, this is an apologetics thing we can get into some other time. Things that we claim are arguments for, they don't really prove anything. You can't 
mathematically prove God's existence, but they are evidence of, if that makes sense. All right. Well, let's go ahead and quit there, and we will continue uh, next week with question number three, um, where it starts getting even more fun. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Word of God, which is so clear, and we understand what it says, and it makes it so clear that you are who you are, the Creator. We are who we are, your creation, which is now sinful, that you have provided us with your Son, Jesus Christ, to overcome the consequences of our sin, and that there is a day in which all things will be remade. Those things are absolutely clear, and they show your, your uh, grace, they show your justice and your holiness. The whole of your attributes are, ex- are explained therein. We pray, Lord, that we would begin to see just how central Scripture is, how absolutely uh, necessary it is, and how very much sufficient it is. Uh, we know, Father, that there's other things that we can study. We're not claiming that uh, Scripture is going to teach us calculus or how to fix a drain pipe, but it does give us everything that we need to know for faith and life. We thank you, Father, for speaking to us so clearly in your word, especially through him who is the living word, the Logos, Jesus himself, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll continue next week.